Well, Representative Rick Williams, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to our radio audience today. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk to you and uh, share with all of the folks uh, back home, you know, what's happening under the Gold Dome. Well, as we're talking now, this is the week after crossover day, which, of course, is the time in the legislative session in which legislation has to pass out of one chamber and into the other to be considered for um, a final passage during that legislative session. I'm not sure if you exactly consider that the halfway point. It's definitely the crux moment. But I'd wondered if you could tell us about what themes you're seeing emerge in this 2017 legislative session. Well, it's. I hear it more and more, is this legislation good for the people? Is this creating more legislation? Do we need this legislation? And I think everyone is all on board that we don't want to create more legislation. We don't want to over-legislate. And I think that's a big thing, you know, is trying to find a happy medium of things that need to be regulated without regulating anything and everything. Everybody is very, very careful as to what they're doing, and they ask those questions, is this really needed, and who does this legislation benefit, and is this going to help the people? And are are these breaking down in just a thought of uh, less government is better government, or keeping control even closer to home than the state government, i.e. in the hands of the county and and municipal governments? Or is is there any uh, different kind of flavor to this idea about just uh, less legislation? Mainly, I think, less legislation and leaving more control up to the local community, up to the local government. For instance, unfunded mandates to the county commission. You know, there's been a number of topics going on from salaries to other things to things to requiring the counties to do and the counties commissioners keep telling us don't put more unfunded mandates don't tell us what to do don't legislate and don't regulate county from Atlanta you know let us have control over our things and then help us where we need help and you know that's what we're trying to do is try to walk that fine line of being helpful and helping everybody and doing the best we can for the county and for the state. And it's always the motto of for the people. And I realize that everyone's not going to agree. I don't agree with everything, and I vote against some things. But then, again, I realize that some things, uh, and it's compromise, and uh, we're going to have to give on some things and take on some of the others. And if we think about some of the broad themes that we've seen in legislation and in debate across this legislative session so far, what are you spending the most time thinking about if if there's any one or two issues that have really captured your attention this year? Well, the one of them was the coal ash pond. And you and I had mentioned that there's actually, I think there's four in Baldwin County, three or four one large one over by Plant Branch and on the side of Plant Branch, and then there's a couple across the road. And Georgia Power being able to pump the water out of those coal ash ponds, and Representative Jeff Jones from South Georgia had introduced the bill, and he went through several hearings, 
and I actually co-signed the bill. Well, he and I had had a discussion just today on that. That bill is not dead, and we will be working to try to revise that and requesting hearings coming up in this next session. For our audience, could you walk through some of the points of what problem y'all are trying to address about coal ash, and then what ways you're hoping to affect that issue? Well, the coal ash ponds, and of course that is on Georgia Power's property. The EPA has regulations on water and what kind of water needs to be discharged into Lake Sinclair or Lake Oconee or whatever lake a waterway might be adjacent to some of these coal ash ponds. Well, EPA has the authority to make them test that water before it's turned in, but they only test it for a couple of elements. Uh, They don't test it for everything and to run a completely thorough test on it. And we want more tests done on this water. We're concerned about this water that's being released into like Sinclair from these uh, coal ash ponds. We're going to be creating a website. We're going to be creating a Facebook page so that we can keep everyone involved and up to speed as to what's going on and what's happening with the discharge of the water from the coal ash ponds. I just want to just say for our listeners who may not be familiar with this issue, of course, coal ash is a byproduct of the coal fire power production process, basically a solidified almost soot that's left over. It's cleaned out of the system through uh, some scrubbers, and then it's collected in these coal ash ponds, generally uh, put under a, a smaller body of water so that some of the contaminants that are in there, you might think heavy metals and other kinds of potentially harmful substances are in there, and uh, it seems to me that y'all are trying to make sure that none of those potentially cancer-causing contaminants make it into uh, the water supply, whether that that be a water supply just for uh, that people may use for recreation or fishing, or in the case of, I think, our local community, the Sinclair Water Authority draws from Lake Sinclair, a different part of the lake, obviously, but then downstream from the Lake Sinclair Dam, the city of Milledgeville draws for its drinking water. Is that a correct way to to look at coal ash? It is. As a matter of fact, the two House bills are HB 387 and HB 388, both of them introduced by Representative Jeff Jones, and I'm a co-signer on them. And that's a uh, that's very much what it's about. We want uh, Georgia Power to have monitoring wells around these coal ash ponds. We want to make sure that it doesn't go into the ground aquifer. For instance, I live south of the lake. My family and I drink out of our well. So, you know, I want to make sure my well is not contaminated. So we want to make sure that these measures go into place because, yeah, the city actually gets its water from the Oconee River. And so that's where the water treatment plant is. And so that's downstream. So exactly that's where all that coal ash water, when it goes into the lake, is going to go through, you know, and wind up in that water supply. And what has uh, the reaction been from uh, Georgia Power on that issue? Well, Representative Jones, he spent about, and he provided about six hours of testimony before two different natural resources and environmental subcommittees, two times on each bill to explain the problem, and they never got out of committee. They were never granted a vote. But he and I did talk today. We've not given up, and we're going to be mounting 
a harder stance against these coal ash ponds and these two House bills coming up in this next session. It, they just did not get a vote, didn't get out of it. We don't know why, but we ran up against the brick wall, but we'll be working on this next session. And of course, that'll be a lingering issue because uh, it seems the plan now is to just leave some of those coal ash ponds in place. And I believe the one at Sinclair is one that's uh, slated to be a permanent coal ash pond. Well, from what I understand, what they're going to do is the smaller ones over on the side of the 441 away from Plant Branch, that they're going to excavate those and move that coal ash residue over onto the larger pond site there where Plant Branch was situated, where they're tearing that down. They're going to be relocating all of that over into a larger one. Well, as a landfill, you have to line them with an impervious liner in the bottom before you put this coal ash in, or as in the case of a landfill, before you put the garbage in, and then you put a liner over the top of it. So we want to make sure that does not pose any kind of health hazard to our water, our citizens, and most of all to our environment. Now, I want to move over to another issue that's being looked at at the state level, but also hits home for uh, many of the listeners here in Baldwin County, and that's uh, campus safety. Now, uh, for the last two years, there's been a growing momentum behind the campus carry movement, and that's a legislation that would allow all um, licensed concealed carry gun owners over the age of 21 to bring firearms onto the campus, a place where at the present time that is prohibited. This legislation did pass last year, but it was vetoed by Governor Nathan Deal for several concerns he had about just, you know, the great diversity of Georgia's college campuses. I was wondering if you could talk about that legislation, how it's fared this year, and how you made the decision on the way that you voted for that bill. I did. And Daniel, why I voted yes to campus carry. And without a doubt, this is a troubling time in America. Mass shootings have been happening with seemingly greater intensity. House Bill 280, the campus carry bill, sponsored by Representative Mandy Ballinger, Republican of Canton, would permit 21-year-old licensed concealed carry permit holders to carry a concealed weapon on Georgia's publicly funded college campuses but not in dorms, on campus, preschools, or at athletic events. There's some eye-opening statistics that have been shared by the FBI. 14.3 is the number of deaths on average in mass shootings when everyone in the victim group is unarmed. 2.3 is the number of deaths on average in mass shootings when at least one person in the victim group is armed. And these statistics are similar throughout the country. While I certainly do not like what our society has turned into, the facts are clear. Licensed concealed carry permit holders are among the most law-abiding citizens in our great country, and they help to keep the rest of our citizens safe. The campus carry bill will only allow licensed concealed carry permit holders over 21 
to carry their weapons on campus. That's how I was able to come up with how I voted to on that particular issue. I actually had several college professors to ask me to vote yes on that bill. Possible that some of these campus professors or workers at different colleges are concealed carry permit holders and they want to be able to carry their weapon legally. There's a lot of factors in that bill. Do you feel that the changes that were put into place in this legislation were enough to satisfy the governor from the concerns that he had last year? I know that he said he is open to the conversation, but he provided pretty specific instructions last year um, about what he was not satisfied with. Well, only time will tell. As we all know, he may change his mind or this may satisfy him. So we'll just have to wait and see. It's in the governor's hands now. We'll see what happens. And over on the Senate side, and I think it passed through the Senate and maybe and maybe headed on to the governor. So we'll just have to wait and see. And now I, I want to also uh, hit upon another issue about campus safety. This one has to do with uh, sexual assaults on college campuses. There was a piece of legislation that set up a process in the way that these crimes are investigated on college campuses. Uh, could you talk about this campus safety issue and how you made your decision on that piece of legislation? Yes, I certainly can. I sat in on committee meetings listening to testimony from families of people who were students whose lives were ruined by being falsely accused of something that they actually did not do and were later cleared, but it was too late. Their life had been ruined. One situation happened at one local college here in Atlanta, and I know there's been other situations that have happened all over the state. What it comes down to is when you're investigating, we need real investigators, people who are trained to do investigating and to do the investigation itself. You know, college professors or people asked to serve on a board at a college, they're not necessarily post-certified or post-trained or trained in their interrogation techniques to find out what needs to be done or if, in fact, a crime did occur. What we need to do is have these situations completely investigated and it places some measures that no one can be falsely accused. You know, the, the students may be put in different classrooms or separated or to prevent an easy situations until facts can be found. But I heard too much testimony of people jumping to the conclusion and taking one party's side and someone being wrongly accused, wrongly condemned, just their life ruined. We want to make sure that doesn't happen. And any investigation that happens, such as uh, our sheriff, our campus police there in Milledgeville, our City police, they're all professionals. They know what they're doing. And if it was me or one of my children involved or grandchildren, I certainly want the professional to be there to take that into consideration. So that's why I was voted like I did on that bill. Now, if 
we were to take that off of the college campus, is there any concern about uh, Georgia's law enforcement's record of investigating and then getting to a, a prosecution of uh, sexual assault cases? Uh, of course, last year, one of the big flashpoints was the final disposition of rape kits in the state of Georgia and there being such a huge backlog about this uh, critical piece of evidence just not finding its way through the system. Are you worried about any kind of uh, misbalance in the way that sexual assault cases are handled not just on our college campuses but across the state of Georgia? I am very much and as I stated earlier I'm on higher education regulated industries and intergovernmental coordination but I see it through many different committee meetings having to do with many things and public safety is one that I've sat through many times and the legislature did appropriate more money to the GBI for more forensic scientists to go ahead and catch up the backlog of these rape kits. That's just unforgivable. That should have never happened. And we've got to make sure that it doesn't happen in the future. These were just, and it's not on the part of the state, they were stuck, you know, a lot of them, in a storage room at the hospital. And the hospital administration just did not turn those over and did not follow through. So anyway, seeing the GBI and the state being more involved and allocating more money for more forensic scientists will help alleviate that backlog and get the results out quicker. And the advancements in DNA testing and everything that's taking place now, the technology and the discussions of technology advancement that I am seeing and hearing here in Atlanta is just absolutely phenomenal of things that are going on. It's a whirlwind. There are a lot of people in and out of the Capitol. There are a lot of situations and hearings that we are um, attending to. And I've uh, attended two different uh, hearings today. One was on voter rolls and cleaning up to make sure that non-citizens are not on jury duty or are allowed to vote. So there's more hearings scheduled on that, along with more talk about the 911 providers in the state of Georgia. I know we have 159 but we have 170 911 providers. And the providers, no county has enough money to pay for their 911. The 911 doesn't generate enough money off the phones. Used to, everybody had a landline and their phone was in their home. All of those phones paid a 911 fee. Well, so many people have given up their home phones and gone to just their cell phones that they have to be accessible to 911 wherever they may be. Between Atlanta and Milledgeville, my phone will go through AT&T, Verizon, different towers, different providers. And if I'm in an accident and I need to dial 911, they've got to know where I am. And that's more money for the um, counties, more money for the providers because they've got to have the GPS devices on each tower. So they're holding hearings, even though I'm not on that committee, I was attending the hearings today listening to testimony from 911 directors over the state of Georgia and the communications professionals. 
as to how some of these problems can be alleviated. And as we were talking during the break, it sounds like there may be some additional fees associated with that you know, to help pay for those services across the state. Do you know how that yeah, might affect people if, if that's the way the legislature decides upon that issue? Yeah, and of course, I was not here when that was decided, but from testimony that was given, people would go by a minutes and load their phone with minutes. And a lot of times they did it twice a month. And so where other people were paying $1.50 a month for a landline, the wireless phones were paying $0.75 for every time they loaded their minutes. Well, I think from the testimony that I heard that they're not able to load the minutes now that more and more people are just going ahead and doing the whole month at one time. So these wireless phones, instead of paying the dollar fifty like they used to by loading them twice a month they're only loading them once a month so they're paying 75 cents that 75 cents is not more even by coca-cola but spread out all over all the wireless phones in the state of georgia hopefully can save some lives i did hear testimony from douglas county 911 provider that floods that had swept through that they were not able because of the problems with 911 and not being on the next level or the next tier that several people drowned and they were not able to save them because of problems in the 911 that they didn't have the up-to-date equipment. I know we have an awesome 911 system there in Milledgeville and the sheriff, the city, everybody does a fantastic job. We just have to keep up with the times and other things and other technology that's coming forward that we'll be hearing more about of in the future, too. So all of that's going to dictate things that happen. Right. Now, I wanted to turn to one of your pieces of legislation now. You've been a co-sponsor on a piece of uh, legislation to create a funeral services study committee. Uh, now, this has been a, a topic of, of national debate uh, by some of our partners and at the national level um, on public radio. And I was just wondering if you might be able to tell me um, about the impetus for putting this industry, one, of course, of which you're a representative of, under the microscope. What are you hoping to achieve with the study group? Well, this was actually brought up to me by being in the funeral business. We also have Representative Jay Collins from Villarica, who is in the funeral profession, along with Representative Patty Bentley from over in Macon County. So actually, they appointed a funeral director caucus of us three funeral directors that are here in the legislature. And Representative Bentley had introduced legislation that would limit the number of caskets that's actually own the premises of a funeral home. They don't have to be in the funeral home, but state law states that they had to have eight caskets at each funeral home. Well, not to be shown to a family. A family can pick out caskets from catalog, from an iPad, or from pictures, or whatever. But this is just a law that was put on the books back in the 1950s. I just remember back in those 50s, because my father went into the funeral business in 1952, the year I was born, so I was just pretty much raised in it as long as, as well as my children. But back then, you had only had casket trucks that would come through about every three weeks, and it was only legal to buy a casket from a funeral home. It was actually illegal for else to sell a casket. 
as hard as that is to believe, that was actually the law. This all changed in the 80s with the uh, Federal Trade Commission when they came through with regulations deregulating funeral homes and requiring itemization and allowing casket stores to open. That happened in a number of states, but then when it came to Georgia, a lawsuit had to be filed to get the law changed to allow these casket stores to open up and be open to the public. Now you can look on the Internet. You can buy a casket on the Internet. You can build your own as well as cremation urns. There's no law requiring you to do anything or buy anything from any funeral home. We've complied with federal laws since 1983 or 86, whenever it was that they uh, were implemented. But all of this was brought up to me by legislative council that they were having problems looking at funeral laws because they've been looking at them in the past with the popularity of crematories and cremation. The, some of the terminology that was used in the 1950s is no longer used. And some of the terminology that's used today is not even in the laws on the books. And so it was suggested to me that we ask the speaker to appoint a study committee to look at funeral service laws over the course of the summer as to modernizing them to make sure that families are not taken advantage of, that the law is black and white. We introduced that and dropped that into the hopper, so we'll see if a study committee is appointed, and we'll go from there. All right, and so we're coming to the close of our our time today. So I wanted to turn it over to you and ask you, are there any issues or possible pieces of legislation that you want to hear from your constituents about? Well, thank you. I appreciate that very much. I want to tell everyone it is an honor to serve the people of Baldwin and Putnam County and the people of the state of Georgia. I have learned a lot, irregardless of how much you try to prepare yourself until you actually get here, you don't realize how much goes on here at the Capitol, how much discussion of different legislation. What we all want to make sure of that everyone is treated fair, equitable, and that we help people. There has been a number of people that have contacted me with different situations and been able to help them and put them in touch with the right people, whether it be for the Veterans Administration or other things. Now, one group of people, the National Guardsmen, a number of them have contacted me about them being able to be buried in veteran cemeteries. So I've uh, I've worked on that, and there's some federal legislation that is involved in that. So I've not been able to move forward on that, that we're going to reach out to our representative, uh, U.S. Representative Jody Heiss, and uh, go at it from that way and uh, see what we can do to make sure that those veterans are recognized also and that some benefits are afforded them. But uh, mainly, I just want to keep the lines of communication open. My email address is rick.williams at house.ga.gov. The Union Recorder, the Ball and Bulletin, the Eatonton Messenger have all been so kind, along with you, Daniel, there at the radio station of 
staying in contact with me and allowing me to stay in touch with our constituents and people there in Baldwin and Putnam County. And I just want to hear from anyone problems, and that's what I'm here for is to try to work on those and make things better. Well, Representative Rick Williams, thank you so much for just taking this time today and speaking to our radio audience. Thank you very much, Daniel. I look forward to seeing you soon. And I hope the same for you and uh, safe travels back and forth uh, between here and the Capitol. Thank you.